0: Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn Trauma Surgeon and Surgical Intensivist And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an Adult and Child Psychiatrist Welcome to Trauma Code Together, we will focus on healing a mind, body, and community from trauma.
1: We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Listen here, baby. The step back is so crazy. You say your mom ain't home and ain't my turn. Just go play with me and you won't get burned. I only want to itch and desire. Let me stand next to your fire.
0: Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio, on the air, in New York City. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, My lovely co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael, has clinical obligations today, so if you tuned in to hear her lovely voice, uh, my apologies. Uh, And that song we heard, of course, was Jimi Hendrix, uh, Fire, a classic, Uh, and seems uh, appropriate Uh, this past week. Of course, uh, New York City was blanketed with a layer of a kind of smoky haze um, that was pretty much unprecedented in our lifetimes. And the air quality today is still um, notably affected by those events. Uh, You know, people have started hearing more and more about the air quality index. I believe that value today for Brooklyn, when I checked, was around 90, uh, which if you'd have told me that two weeks ago, uh, that would have been kind of the worst air quality in Brooklyn since the 70s. But, of course, it was much worse over this past week. Uh, and so uh, this past Friday I interviewed our local uh, climate, the public health of climate and weather specialist, uh, Dr. Daniel Elke, uh, who is a professor, uh, associate professor at uh, the State University of New York Downstate School of Public Health here in Brooklyn. Uh, and he has a class that he's teaching right now, so we actually recorded that interview um, this past Friday. So uh, in a little bit, we're going to have a little musical interlude and then we're going to play um, that interview uh, with uh, Dr. Daniel Elke. And of course, uh, radio listeners would have just heard um, more more news of mass shootings, which is, I guess, a daily phenomenon. So we're obviously going to come back to that uh, in the near future. I think probably next week I'll have on Dr. Joseph Sacron, who's a, a trauma surgeon from Johns Hopkins, uh, who as a child survived the shooting and now uh, works in you know, both advocacy, policy, and clinically working uh, f- to, uh, to prevent uh, and heal from, from gun violence. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to have a little musical interlude and get to our interview with Dr. Daniel Elke. A good friend of the podcast or of the radio show, uh, Dr. Daniel Elke, who's an associate professor of health policy, correct me if I get anything wrong, uh, from uh, SUNY Downstate School of Public Health. Uh, And he joined us uh, last year around the time of the blizzard uh, in Buffalo uh, because he has a special interest in uh, the public health effects of the climate. Did I get most of that right, Dr. Elke? That's correct. You got it all right. And uh, excellent. And thank you for joining us. And I asked you to come on the show, um, because, uh, you know, we're actually recording it on Friday to air on Monday, because you are teaching a, a class during the time of the radio show. But earlier this past week, you know, I kind of vaguely heard that, you know, smoke from wildfires in California would make its way to New York. I mean, Canada, not California. Uh, And then, you know, on Tuesday night when I picked up my kids from school, it was a little bit kind of the sky was a little bit ominous, but the kids still convinced me to let them play on the playground. Um, But that night I could smell the smoke outside. I brought the air purifier up into their room. Um, And by Wednesday, the city was completely blanketed in an apocalyptic like uh, layer of smoke that I think really um, was chilling for a lot of people Uh, And, you know, since then, it's cleared up a little bit. I can still see some blue in the sky. But there was a sense that this was a peek into our future. Uh, So, first of all, let's start in the beginning. Help us understand what happened this past week, Dr. Elke.
2: Great way to start things off. Yes. So, you know, interestingly enough, this is actually the second round of wildfire smoke that we've experienced just this late spring, early meteorological summer, as we call it, June, uh, alone. Uh, we had an early round a few weeks ago, uh, that was the smoke from Western wildfires, from Alberta, uh, parts of Western Canada, that made their way all the way over here, thanks to the workings of the jet stream, which is uh, the sort of conveyor belt that you know brings not only weather systems from west to east, but smoke uh, in some cases. So that was kind of a prelude, very very minor. But you would have looking up, you may have noticed, you know, again some sort of haze, a little more difficult to see the sun. Uh, But as you noted, you know, we 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 entered a a really a new level of uh, quasi apocalyptic uh, visions uh, this past Wednesday, Um, and that was due to actually some smoke that had its origins closer to us, relatively speaking, and that's why you know we noticed it a lot more partly. Uh, this was smoke coming from wildfires burning uh, in uh, central and northern Quebec. Um, so Quebec, you know, neighbors New York State, not very far away. Uh, but what really made this worse, if, it, if the smoke had just been over Quebec, um, we probably wouldn't have heard anything about it. Uh, however, we had a pesky, upper-level, low-pressure system swirling away low pressure is just another word for an area of storminess or swirling away uh off the coast of new england this brought in a northwesterly flow so winds from the northwest uh and what's to our northwest well that smoke from quebec uh these were some fairly high winds so they really took that smoke and they channeled it uh very densely right overhead um, and really all the way down to the surface. Uh, and that's what we were seeing um, with uh, you know those orange tones, those eerie orange tones, the, the low visibility uh, on Wednesday. Uh, now, what has happened today uh, when we're, we're taping this is the wildfires are still burning up in the same place, but that low pressure system moved ever so slightly actually off to the west, so closer to us. That changed the direction of the wind enough To shoot that smoke away from our region. So, uh, you know, we have the the low pressure system really to to thank for both the introduction of that smoke, but also its exit uh, as we work our way, you know, certainly today. And we're going to see continued improvement uh, over the weekend into early next week when
0: uh, your listeners will hear this. And, you know, you've given us a lot to think about. And and I don't think I heard much discussion of the weather systems until you and I spoke. Mm -hmm. Um, But first, I want to think about kind of where we are uh, in New York City, where our listeners are, how bad really was the air on Wednesday? You know, I I started hearing about the AQI, Air Quality Index, um, which, as I understand, it got up to a level of around 415. And I don't know how long we've been using this index, but the previous high in New York City, I understand, was in the 80s. So this right blew away the previous measurements. But what are the measurements that we're talking about, and how long have we been using these? To measure air in New-, in New York City?
2: So, you know, we, we are presented with something of a problem when we start to ask ourselves, you know, how unprecedented is this? You know, when it comes to temperature records, we hold records from Central Park and other area reporting stations going all the way back to the late 1860s. So that's, you know, that's a, a very broad record. So we can see how, for instance, area temperatures have changed. When it comes to data about air pollution, air quality, however, those records don't go back nearly as far. So really we're talking, you know, the 1970s and 80s, this is a period immediately after the original Earth Day, uh, when the country, you know, arguably the world as a whole, really became a lot more environmentally aware. And born out of that was the sense that we really needed to start measuring air pollution so we can know just how bad the problem is and whether we're making any progress. So the records that we have don't go back, relatively speaking, all that far. We can go back to the 70s and the 80s. We can compare to what we've seen over the past 30, 40, you know, almost 50 years. Um, but we can't go back really much further than that when it comes to you know, tools like the AQI, the Air Quality Index. Now, what we were seeing on Wednesday, for instance, and there, there are a couple things you know, at play here. Um, and this caused, you know, I think a lot of confusion. I, I was confused, quite frankly, um, you know, because I, I don't make a habit of, of looking at, you know, AQI uh, numbers on a daily basis, certainly, as I do, you know, temperature records and the like. Um, but, you know, there are two things being measured. You know, we're, we're seeing measurements of particulate matter in the atmosphere, um, which, you know, is, is really those pollutants that you find, you find in smoke um, for the most part. So uh, the, the raw measure that you're seeing, and that generally goes on a scale from about zero to 150, 200 or so. Then derived from that is an air quality, an overall air quality index that takes into account the smoke, but also just the overall quality of the environment. It is related to that particulate matter score, but it's on a sort of an uneven scale. Um, So at the beginning of the scale, for instance, the AQI reading uh, is about, I don't know, 40 or 50 points above the particulate matter reading. Um, And then it gets slightly less, it diverges slightly less as you move forward. So, you know, depending on the source that you check, you may have been seeing readings of particulate matter, which tended to be a little bit lower. So maybe in the 100, 150, maybe as high as 200 range. But then there's the air quality index overall, which as you noted was up over 300, 400 uh, in spots, and in very localized locations, even higher than that. The city actually has a number of sites, including at the Williamsburg Bridge, Broadway and 35th Street, etc. about 10 or 11 different sites uh, at ground level. And they measure in real time air quality and the air quality index in some of these locations pushing 500. I mean, just way off the charts, just to give you you know, a a perspective, usually, it's at 35 or below. So you know, we're talking uh, air quality readings that were, you know, more than 10 times that what you would see on, on a normal day. So that should give you a sense of just how unusual this is, whether it was unprecedented in the history of a city that you know, goes back to the 17th century, you know, who knows, Uh, but certainly within the the context of uh, history of the last several decades, uh, this was probably nearly unprecedented.
0: And, you know, I uh, actually was living in Beijing, um, something like 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, that was the first time that I experienced like an opacity of the air where just in looking across the street or down the block, you could see that the air was not transparent mean um, I, I think one day when I was living there, uh, there were air quality measurements from, the I think, the U.S. Embassy. Uh, and either some jokester or somebody who wasn't thinking about it had preset these automatic announcements uh, so that the air quality of the particulate matter measurement got up above 500. And it briefly um, stated that the quality of the air was, quote, crazy bad. Um, but that's actually how bad the air got here Wednesday afternoon. I think some of the particulate matter measurements got up around 700, 800 yeah. Um, so, you know, the question is, and I don't know if we know the answer to this, what uh, are, as someone uh, from a school of public health, what are the health impacts on people like myself or my children uh, who are breathing in this kind of air?
2: The health impacts vary uh, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, they vary based on, you know, the, the initial vulnerability of an individual or a group, uh, as, as you might expect. So. For a, you know, fairly healthy individual, um, you know, I would say that the immediate impacts, certainly, of breathing in air like that are relatively, and I put the emphasis on relatively limited. So you you heard a lot of anecdotes saying that, well, you know, it it might be the equivalent of, you know, maybe smoking a pack of cigarettes, you know, which, while very unhealthy, um, isn't alone enough to uh, you know, create a, a hazardous condition in many people. However, what we have to think about are those who have uh, pre-existing conditions, who have, um, you know, comorbidities. Uh, many individuals are, are already uh, at risk. They might have asthma, uh, other breathing difficulties. These conditions very much exacerbate uh, pre-existing conditions like asthma uh, and the like. And when you talk about kind of long-term exposure to air of that quality, uh, this is a situation that can not only you know lead to uh, unhealthy circumstance, but it can take you know potentially years off of one's life. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about a situation which days like this, perhaps not quite this bad, but days like this become more and more common, if people have sustained exposure. To air of this quality, uh, we are talking about over time certainly increased morbidity and over a longer period of time increased mortality. Um, so this is not simply a matter of temporary discomfort. You know, even people you know, who don't suffer from asthma uh, or underlying conditions, right, uh, were reporting you know uh, stinging eyes, uh, other other m- mild symptoms. Um, but you know it goes well beyond that if you talk about sustained exposure to air like this, and that's why you know the the advice uh, we heard was you know to wear a good you know KN N95 uh, quality mask if you're going to have long periods of time outdoors uh, in in air like that, and and I would very much uh, support uh, that advice. And really, if you are able to limit your time outdoors. Of course, you know, that's all well and good. But for those who are most vulnerable, most at risk, uh, you know, our unhoused population, in many cases, that's just not possible. So some of us might have the luxury to, you know, find a a healthier environment. But we have to remember that there are many, many people who who can't do so. uh, And for whom that's that's really not a a
0: possibility. Right. I was really struck by how the N95, uh, you know, it's hard to say it was making a comeback, but uh, we certainly haven't let that go yet. That seems to be part of our um, emergency supplies uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and we talked a little bit about how unprecedented this is. Although I have to say, growing up, I don't remember ever having a weather forecast of smoky. But as my kids asked me what was the weather, what you know, what that's the only thing I could think to explain to them, and I almost had an argument with them. Um, but I think that's gonna be part of the uh, forecaster's lexicon, right? I and mean, certainly probably already is out in the West Coast. Um, but in the other you know there's sort of three parts of this. One was the, the local effects. Two was the fires in Canada, and three was the, the kind of weather um, patterns that that made it so um, focused on New York City. Um, but going, let's take take a step over to those fires in Canada uh is that usual unusual unprecedented is this you know how how do these fires fit in with the 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 records of wildfires in eastern canada going back you know years or generations
2: yeah so you know if we talk about an overall fire season you know the the number of acres or hectares you know uh affected you know is about in keeping with an overall fire season but what's important to remember is The fire season in Canada, that part of Canada at least, usually peaks in July. Um, And so we're not close to that that point, you know, that that marks the usual peak. Uh, So if the season were to end now, this would be typical. However, we know that it's almost certainly not going to end now. Um, So this is a, you know, if, if you look at the chart, almost off the charts, early fire season, um, and, you know, we're already at a point where the, the number of acres burned matches what we would see just about in a typical season overall, which lasts through the summer. Um, and so we have months to go, uh, and yet we've already hit that typical, uh, that typical full season total. So this is, you know, if not unprecedented, pretty close uh, to unprecedented in terms of both the early start to the fire season in Canada, and the amount of geography affected, and the geography itself is very important. Uh, one of you know the, a lot of questions you know you might get from from kids, but also you know a number of adults. I think have the same question. Well, you know, are efforts being made to actually fight these wildfires? And the answer is yes and no. And the reason I say yes and no is because in, it, for the most part, these are fires that are burning uh, in you know quasi tundra environments well away from any uh, areas of human settlement. And when it comes to how these fires are are typically fought, in many cases, they will simply be allowed to burn unless they are threatening uh, key infrastructure of some sort, right? And in many cases, they're just not. You add to the fact that these are very remote regions. It's it's hard to get the, the necessary transport, you know, the, the necessary uh, firefighting equipment up to these areas. Uh, and you have a situation which, you know, typically these fires would simply be allowed to burn. That's what happens in, in typical years. So, you know, the fires will uh, likely continue off and on. Now, they'll, they'll be extinguished partially by uh, you know, occasional rain, areas of rain, areas of precipitation, uh, but they're likely to burn off and on during the course of the entire summer. Um, we have to hope that we don't get in combination with that another one of these upper level lows that just parks itself off the coast, which itself is, while not unprecedented, uh, pretty anomalous for this time.
0: And, and I want to get into kind of the. Um how unusual these weather patterns are. But, you know, I was talking to the friend of the show, uh, Darna Noor, a climate um, journalist who just wasn't available to to record, but she was saying that these fires were were very unusual. And um, kind of what I'm hearing from you, but you haven't necessarily shined a light on, is that we're talking about the tundra burning, right? The the area that we used to know as permafrost, right? Is that normal for, for those areas to have such large, uncontrolled fires?
2: Well, you know, we're talking about areas sort of near the edge of the tundra. So there is enough greenery there, you know, to enough organic material, right, to burn. Um, But, you know, what we are going to be seeing, you know, with the warming of the climate is that areas of green, you know, areas of relative greenery uh, are going to be creeping, already have crept, you know, further north. Um, And so areas that may not have burned as much in the past could certainly see larger fires. So the the geographic position of these fires is going to change as the climate changes as well. So that's that too is is unusual.
0: And I was checking the news right before we um, we, we got on the phone. Um, and I noticed that there's also a sounds like a very unprecedented heat spell in Siberia in the kind of Russian equivalent of northern Canada. What's going on there? Is that the same thing? Is, is this runaway climate change?
2: Well, you know, I, I think certainly, you know, while it's too early to attribute, you know, individual events to climate change, um, you know, including rapid warmups that we see in northern Siberia, you know, even areas of uh, Quebec where we saw the wildfires, one of the reasons the fires are happening early is because they have been experiencing unusual heat and dry conditions, uh, drier conditions than they normally would. So these are unusual conditions, you know, across the Arctic and subarctic regions. Um, and you know what we are going to be seeing with climate change is certainly conditions like this becoming more common. So while we can't say with certainty that you know this particular warm-up and uh, this particular spell of drier conditions up there is you know directly traced to climate change, what we can say is that we're certainly going to see more of that or' likely to see more of that as time passes. And so it very well, could be it, it pretty well likely uh is tied in some form fashion to climate change um and uh we're, we're going to see being uh see conditions uh like that replicated more and more as we move through time
0: and the other um news about uh, a heat spell right now and i think you pointed this out to me uh when we spoke briefly uh is in puerto rico right mm-hmm. um how is that related to what we're seeing in new york with these uh you know uh this hazy smoke uh, event? Yeah, yeah, great, great
2: question. So, you know, the uh, there is a, a very unusual uh, heat wave uh, occurring in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, of course, usually fairly warm, you know, this time of year. Um, but, you know, those temperatures are usually moderated by its uh, proximity, of course, to, to ocean waters. Uh, so you get a, a natural cooling effect. But because of the position of a very strong high-pressure system uh, in in the Atlantic, um, that is pumping in warmer air uh, from the south to an extent that we don't usually see warmer air and again because of the proximity to the ocean very humid air we're talking about heat index you know the combination of temperature and humidity getting up to 125 which are levels just normally not seen uh, certainly in Puerto Rico not seen in, in many other parts of the world for that matter um, so one of the reasons why that upper level o that i talked about earlier isn't you know moving faster isn't just being shunted out to sea as it normally would is because it's being blocked by a series of high pressure systems in the atlantic one of those high pressure systems is situated close enough to puerto rico that it's pumping in that heat so you can say that the two phenomena the the fires the the not the wildfires themselves certainly but the channeling of the smoke into our region and the heat that we're seeing in Puerto Rico are very much uh, tied or very much connected.
0: And I remember one of the phenomenon of uh, this era of climate change that I remember hearing about is the disruption of the jet stream that you've talked about, which kind of right carries uh, humid, warm, humid air up from the Gulf across the uh, eastern coast of the United States and kind of across the Atlantic. Um, is that that sounds kind of tied into what you're talking about, where the the normal patterns of of airflow and current around Puerto Rico, up the East coast. And then that normally would have pushed a lot of this smoke. It sounds like out, um, towards the Northeast is, is being disrupted. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think there, there are, you know, theories, I think pretty well-founded theories now, uh, that, you know, point to climate change as a culprit for, you know, changed behavior on the part of the jet stream, uh, and systems just becoming more bogged down and the weather pattern generally becoming blocked. So while that does happen you know, on occasion, uh, it's another of the series of phenomena that many scientists believe are likely to become more common as we move through time. So right now it's the exception, might become more of the rule as, as we move through time. Now, one thing that's interesting too, is that you know, this sort of pattern is not necessarily unusual or unheard of, uh, but it's less common this time of the year. So the timing is strange. So, you know, usually in a given winter, uh, we see, you know, a series of nor'easters that bring, you know, often heavy snow to our, you may recall that that didn't happen. One of the reasons is because we didn't have a sustained period of high pressure over the Atlantic that kind of forced systems up the coast rather than shunting them straight out to sea. That's happening now. If this were winter, we might be in a more favorable pattern for a, a big snowmaker. Um, but that didn't happen. And instead, we're seeing conditions like that over the summer. So you see, you know, just generally a topsy-turvy pattern uh, with the way that storm system, areas of high pressure, the jet stream are behaving. And, you know, I think there is some evidence to suggest that that is uh, linked to climate change and that, you know, that topsy-turvy sort of environment is is likely become more common as we move through time.
0: Uh, anything else about um, this kind of Uh, strange weather event for New York City over the past week uh, that we haven't spoken about that you think is important to consider?
2: Well, you know, I I think that we, uh, you know, should should simply, uh, you know, be more aware, you know, about how all of this is interconnected, you know, how these factors are interconnected and how increasingly we're seeing the effects of events that are happening very far away. Uh, And I think it it kind of stresses the extent to which when it comes to fighting the effects, uh, you know, adapting uh, on some level to climate change, you know, we're really all in this together. Um, And so we can't simply sit back and say, oh, you know, people far away are experiencing, you know, conditions. Um, Not only do we need to make sure that conditions improve for for people wherever they happen to be, but we have to be aware that, you know, a lot of these same conditions could be visited upon us. Uh, In the very uh, near future uh, again. So, we're all in this together and we all need to work together uh, to uh, both, you know, where we can adapt to climate change and and where we can to potentially slow uh, its impact.
0: So, should we all have, uh, make sure we have air purifiers in our home and uh, N95 masks in our go bag? Uh, You know, what else should we take from this uh, locally?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, don't throw away those masks, uh, you know, unless they're well and truly used. Uh, but keep a supply of, of masks on hand. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, we saw a period when, you know, mask wearing, of course, was very politicized. You know, I'm actually somewhat hopeful that maybe, just maybe, uh, the fact that so many people are, are seeing that, you know, these masks also work very well in terms of environmental hazards generally, that it could potentially depoliticize uh, mask wearing and make it more, you know, uh, socially acceptable, broadly speaking. I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be the case. So absolutely keep the masks handy. If you can, um, you know, line up uh, air purifiers, um, not only, you know, for uh, factors relating to climate change, but just, uh, you know, a regular particulate matter in the air, dust uh, and the like. And many people have allergies uh, to dust, may not be diagnosed. Good idea to have those air purifiers on hand anyway, uh, regardless of uh, the conditions outside.
0: And, you know, uh, as this is kind of going on, there's also, you know, the, the politics uh, on the national stage, you know, there was some effort uh, uh, during the Biden presidency to put some funding and effort um, behind, you know, uh, plans and, and and initiatives to mitigate climate change. Um, and I, I think a lot of really serious people say it, it doesn't go far enough to, to really make a substantial change in the trajectory um, of, of emissions and other, um, you know, of climate change more generally, but then we're seeing that a priority of the, uh, if I can you know just be blunt of the Republican politicians, uh, in you know trying to leverage their ability to, uh, uh, you know their their control over over debt and the purse strings to try to reverse um, investment into climate change initiatives. Um, so you know when we're starting to see these serious effects of climate change. I I guess it's it's a tough question for you but I'm I'm looking kind of cynically a little bit uh, uh, uh and hopeless is a little bit too strong but looking at our political stage right now and seeing a lack of seriousness to really confront what is really uh clear and present danger to our everyday lives.
2: Yeah. Uh, that, that's absolutely it's, it's easy to to fall into you know just a, a really a spiral of negativity when you look at the the political uh state of Affairs uh, presently, particularly in the battle over the, the debt ceiling that you alluded to. But um, you know, I'm also hopeful. Um, you know, the, the debt ceiling deal in large part did not touch a lot of, for instance, clean energy credits that grew out of, for instance, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and other pieces of legislation. Those will take years to really bloom and to bear fruit but I remain optimistic that they could make a difference. So even if you know, the short-term prospects uh, appear fairly discouraging, uh, I think in some ways, you know, there is hope. Uh, we're on a, on a good trajectory. Uh, we just need to see past legislation, uh, again, bear fruit, uh, which I think we will, uh, though it will, it will take time. It won't necessarily garner the headlines uh, that of course a lot of the bad news does.
0: Well, anything else, uh, Dr. Elke, that, that uh, we should think about uh, in, you know, reporting on these topics and thinking about the future besides just keeping an eye on Canadian wildfires and our air quality index moving forward?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I wish the media collectively uh, would do a better job uh, again, uh, and there are some striking examples of how this is already happening, um, but, the, you know, the, the general purpose media, you know, would do a better job of, of kind of educating uh, readers, not only on climate change generally, but on concepts relating to risk, um, because, you know, too often we build up straw men relating to climate change. So, for instance, I saw a lot of arguments, you know, on social media over, well, is this event itself uh, attributable to climate change? And, you know, climate change skeptics would say, there's no way we can know that, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it was caused by lightning, which is perfectly natural and happens, you know, all the time. Well, yeah, uh, the proximate cause was most likely lightning strikes. And yes, that region does see thunderstorms, uh, you know, as a matter of course. Um, But the question isn't, you know, immediately was this particular event attributable to climate change? But are events like this going to become more likely over time? So we have to be careful not to set up straw men in terms of the argument. It is true that it's too early to tell. We can't attribute this specific event to climate change yet. Uh, and we shouldn't speak with great certainty one way or another on that. So we need to live with a certain level of indeterminacy. But if it's likely that events like this could become uh, more likely under climate change, then I think we need to err certainly on the side of caution and do whatever it takes to both you know mitigate uh, what is driving uh, climate change and where we can adapt to it.
0: Excellent. And you know, um, while I have you on on the line, I, I don't remember if you and I spoke about this or it was me and Darna Noor, But um, I have sort of a, a, an interest in the over under on a ice free Arctic, mm. um, and I noticed there was a paper that just came out. Um, I think a, a, a South Korean group collaborating with a Canadian group looking at all the kind of the publicly available data, and their estimate were was a likely uh, ice-free Arctic free, rather ice free Arctic. Um, in the summer by the end of the 2030s. Yeah. Did you have a chance to, to look at that paper? And do you have any thoughts about that and what that means for our, uh, you know, our future and our own lifetimes?
2: I, I certainly read the headlines, you know, arising from uh, from its publication. Uh, and, you know, that that is in keeping, you know, I think with uh, certainly the the evidence that's the prevailing evidence that's, uh, that's out there. So I wasn't terribly shocked uh, to read that, though it is certainly earlier than we would have anticipated. That said, you know, this is something of a moving target. You know, I don't think any team is going to get it exactly right. What it immediately brought to mind to me were these estimates you often hear about when the Medicare trust fund is going to run out of money. Um, and you know, we can't, first of all, it's almost impossible to get an exact date because it's based on all sorts of assumptions relating to the larger economy. But the other point is that, you know, uh, when it comes to medicare no politician would let the medicare trust fund run out of money um so you know i think similarly here you know there are a lot of assumptions that underlie this you know in in any study we just don't know what the conditions could be so it could be a little later than that it could be a little earlier than that potentially and you know arguably there's still at least a little time uh potentially to delay uh that date maybe not you know uh, uh, erase it altogether certainly but delay it so you know, I, I think that it's probably a good approximation, but I'm certainly ready to see uh, some later estimates, especially if some of our est- our uh, efforts, you know, both nationally and internationally begin to bear fruit.
0: You know, I, I remember when I was younger um, on some of these questions related to climate change, people would say, oh, no, but there'll be new technology. We'll be able to, you know, do things we can't even think about today. And as time goes on, I become less convinced by that argument because, if we're not willing to use the technology that's available now, then I don't know why anyone thinks we're going to be willing to use uh, technology that hasn't even been developed yet. Um, so, and, and you know, the other thing about this is I think a lot of people, at least in positions of power, that we sometimes think about as climate deniers. Um, may not actually be climate deniers. They're just positioning themselves to benefit from it before they change any of their uh, kind of policies and things.
2: Absolutely. I think that's very much the case. We have to remember that some of the first individuals to shine a light on climate change, aside from some of the pioneers in NASA you know, and other agencies, were scientists working for Chevron and the other oil companies. Um, so, you know, some of the, the people present themselves as skeptics know full well, you know, what is going on. But I, I think you're right that, you know, as long as Uh, Their paycheck depends on uh, denial, and they'll continue to deny.
0: And, uh, you know, I guess we're getting towards the end of the uh, conversation, and I didn't give you a heads up, but um, you may remember from last time, I always like to give guests an opportunity uh, to share some kind of cultural work, uh, a book, a movie, album, a piece of art, or a performance um, that you want to share with our audience that they may not not, uh, be aware of otherwise. Anything come to mind for you that you want to share with our audience?
2: Absolutely. I've been uh, reading a, uh, a very, you know, I, I hesitate to say entertaining and breezy because, you know, it's it's uh, looks like 600, 700 pages long. Maybe so that may be the, the wrong term for it. Um, but it is a, a new book called The World, uh, a family history of, um, of of the world. And uh, it's written by an eminent historian named Simon uh, Sabag uh, Montefiore. And uh, he's written several of these sort of big history uh, type books. And uh, it traces kind of the different, very literal families and dynasties that have crossed cultures, cross barriers of culture, gender, et cetera, over time uh, to leave their mark on the human experience, particularly within the past, you know, t- 2000 years uh, or so, uh, all the way into the present. Um, and it, it's the sort of book I love uh, because, you know, I, I you know, I, uh, fairly busy. I don't have the time, you know, with three kids, I don't have the time to sit down and, and read a 700 page book, but it's a sort of book where you can pick it up at a point, you know, kind of in the middle and it has all sorts of great anecdotes. So you can just read a few pages and feel edified. Um, and, and I just love books like that. So I've been doing just that, you know, reading snippets here and there when I have a few minutes, uh, and I feel refreshed, uh, afterwards. So,
0: uh, really, uh,
2: highly recommend it.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you, uh, Dr. Elke, for carving out a little bit of time for the trauma code. And uh, uh, you're welcome back on the air anytime we have something like this to talk about, which I'm sure will, uh, if uh, precedent uh, continues, will be a couple of times a year.
2: Absolutely. Well, always happy to do so. Thank
0: All right. Take care. <laughs> The no. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. Uh, and that music that we just heard was a uh, Hita Lee. It writes like Rita Lee, the song Caso uh, Serio. Uh, she is sort of a legend of Brazilian rock music um, who passed away something like a month ago, but we neglected to shine a light on her at the time. And just something to ease us back into our moment in the studio. And that song before our interview with Daniel Elke was wildfire, uh, by Cautious Clay, who's out of Cleveland. And uh, while we think about that, I just wanted to shine a light on a movie that I just saw this last week um, by actually a friend of the family. Uh, It was part of the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival, and that movie was called Forgotten Occupation, uh, which was about um, basically the occupation of Haiti by U.S. Marines from 1915 to 1921. Uh, which is really just a devastating um, piece of uh, historical documentary, uh, as well as, uh, you know, as someone who's married into a Haitian family, uh, really a compelling uh, uh, sober look at history through, you know, the experience of his uh, family members and as well as uh, a deep dive into the archives. Uh, And it ended with a question that uh, we're going to have to address on this show. I think we'll have uh, – Alain Martin, who was the the Haitian filmmaker, um, and uh, posed some questions that I'm looking forward to. You know, after my family, I think my father in law usually listens to the show. Gary, if you're listening, definitely check out Forgotten Occupation, and we got a lot to talk about. This last week, also, we saw the Tony Awards. which, you know, I have to be honest, I didn't, I don't think I ever paid attention to the Tony Awards until I started seeing some of Lin-Manuel Miranda's plays and when I moved to New York and got really excited about that. Um, and we know that uh, for anyone who was paying attention to that, one of the winners uh, was Alex uh, Newell. Uh, I guess a binary uh, goes by they, but uh, the song uh, off of the, uh, uh, the play, the performance called Shucked. The song was called Independently Owned. So uh, at the end of the show, we're definitely going to close out uh, with that. Um, So if you like that, that's how you can find it. That uh, Broadway number from the show on Broadway right now called Shucked. The artist is Alex Newell, Independently Owned. But before we do, just remind you guys that uh, I volunteer to do this because I have such a blast coming on the air. This is my hobby, but we still got to pay the bills in order to keep the legacy of WBAI going. We got to pay for the transmitter. Uh, I know this last week uh, we were off the air for um, transmitter maintenance. Um, But in order to do that, uh, you know, we need support. This is completely listener-supported radio, uh, and you can do that uh, by calling in at 212-209-2950. Again, 212-209-2950. Or giving online at give2wbai.org, that was the number two, uh, or going on wbai.org uh, and clicking on the Donate button. Uh, I'll try to remind them uh, that uh, since uh, the trauma code uh, has been going on for about six months, to definitely uh, put the option on there for supporters of the show to to name us as as the reason that, that you're supporting the station. Definitely there are many reasons uh, to support WBAI uh, going back uh, to the first thing in the morning when you wake up and listen to Amy Goodman. Um, But if you like our show, if you appreciate us, we appreciate you. Definitely stay in touch. Uh, You can find our show uh, on WBAI archives or look for the trauma code uh, wherever you get your uh, podcasts, uh, as well as trauma code WBAI is our handle on social media uh, or WBAI at gmail.com if you want to shoot us a message. Uh, thanks again for joining us, New York. You've been listening to The Trauma Code on WBAI.
1: I'm independently owned and operated The only thing around here that's incorporated I do it all and it's fine by me I'm a one-woman whiskey dynasty I'm independently owned and liberated And I think sleeping alone underrated don't need a man for flatteries got a corn cob and some batteries and i'll never say i do if i really don't if settling means settling down then i won't being a wife just ain't the life for me i'm independently don't need a man to feel emancipated the boys around here sure ain't much help this corn ain't gonna shuck itself there might be someone that and modulated